Rowan Wigmore has lost count of how many animals he's rescued over the years. I meet him on a wide street in Riverside, a hilly rural urban suburb, 10 minutes south of Launceston in northern Tasmania. It's a beautiful, cool winter's day. The skies are clear, the sun is shining, and there's a light breeze. It almost seems inappropriate, given the grim reason we're here. As I pull up behind Rowan's silver hatchback, I see what we've come for. Lying in the gutter to the right is a paddy melon. It's a marsupial, a small fat wallaby with a tapered snout. It's barely moving. It looks in a very bad way. Any animal that we find that's close to the road is more than likely being hit by a car and uh, they can have either internal injuries, head injuries, broken legs. Uh, he may have even been hit just down here at the other intersection and been able to hop up there. And he's laying in a gutter. It's a cold day. He's laying in some water. It's not a very good scenario and it probably won't be the best for him. The pathomelon doesn't squirm or give off any signs of life until we're about two metres away. Even then, it's a resigned, exhausted, weak little wriggle. Hi, little fellow. We're not going to hurt you. Oh, look, he, he's, he's in a really bad way. I'll just, I'll just get bend down here. I might get you to hold the bag for me. I can see her face. Her right eye's scratched and swollen. She's afraid, but doesn't have the energy to muster an escape. My heart breaks for her. Oh, look at you. As you can see, uh, the, I've got him by the tail. He's not even struggling to get away. When, when you look at the face of this poor animal, he's got a bulging eye on one side. Uh, obviously can't see out of that. So I imagine he's been clipped by a car, got a head injury. Rowan tells me the paddy melon could have been lying there in the gutter for 24 hours. It's obviously wet underneath, but the fur's in good condition. When they've been there for a long time, they tend to get some parasites like ticks and flat flies. I did encounter one poor animal that must have been on the side of the road for over a week or so. It was absolutely covered in ticks and, and flat flies that burrow in and bite the, the animal. So he's in a lot of pain from that. And they sit there until they either starve to death or the parasites take their toll or infection sets in, which can happen very quickly with the sort of wounds that we sometimes see of completely severed legs. I noticed with this one you didn't um, check its pouch. Is that because it's a male or is it because... Why was that? Oh, this was a juvenile. Too young to have a baby in her pouch. It was female, but too young for, for that. You can also see if there's a bit of a lump there, but don't forget when macropods have their babies, they're the size of a jelly bean and they make their way up to the pouch, so there could be a jelly bean-sized one there, but this one is definitely too young to have, have born a baby at all. Rowan carries her to the boot of his car. The paddy melon makes little groans and gargled okay. breaths. There you go, little girl. She's clearly scared and in agony. Just put you in the back there. You'll be fine. Is that a mallet you've got in the back of your car? I notice a sledgehammer yes, in the back of Ron's car. Do you really want to know what he tells for? me when animals are too far gone, he yeah. uses it to yeah. euthanise them. Unfortunately, the sledgehammer... Um, uh, would have been used on this guy had it been outside hours or on the weekend when, when vets are closed. And unfortunately, the only tools available to us is blunt force trauma, which means um, it's a bit graphic, but uh, we have to crush the brain and they have to do it as quickly as possible uh, so the animal's not in pain. He drives off, taking the paddy melon to the vet, where she'll most likely be put down. Unfortunately, incidents like these are far from rare in Tasmania. I'm Beck Pritham, and for this episode of Voice of Real Australia, 
I ask why Tasmania has earned a reputation as the roadkill capital of Australia. The stats say 32 animals are killed every hour. That's more than half a million marsupials, reptiles and birds becoming roadkill every single year. And this is an island that's known for its unique biodiversity and World Heritage Wilderness. You could argue that because there are more animals here, there's going to be more dead ones. But when you look closer, you see holes in animal protection policy that leaves even threatened species exposed. I think one of the challenges with Tasmanians accepting roadkill is if it's all you've ever seen and it's all you ever know, how do you know any different? And I think that was highlighted beautifully by a gentleman uh, that we came across who uh, lived on Bruni Island and had been in Tasmania his entire life and um, at the ripe age of 50 uh, went for his first trip to the mainland and the commentary that he brought back was how amazing it is that everyone on the mainland picks up all the roadkill so you don't really see any. That's Greg Irons, the director of Bonnarong Wildlife Sanctuary, about half an hour north of Hobart. Hello. I drive down from Launceston to visit Greg on the first day of winter. The change of season has brought with it heavy grey clouds and chilly stop-start showers, suggesting the next few months will be gloomy. Greg and his team run Tasmania's main wildlife rescue service. His team rehabilitates injured animals and releases them back into the wild and also provides a home to those that can't return. With a network of over a 1,000 volunteer rescuers around the state, members of Greg's team are often the first responders to animals hit by cars. We can um, say, unfortunately, with stats to back it up, that roadkill in Tasmania is getting worse every single year. I mean, we see more calls every single year than we've seen the year before. And unfortunately, that number uh, shows no sign of going backwards because it's not growing by a little bit. It is growing by a lot. And that's really scary for us, not just because of obviously more wildlife suffering and more animals that are under increasing threat from other things as well as uh, vehicles, But of course, it's our ability to keep up. There comes a number where we can't get to the ones we need to and there's only a certain amount of rehabilitators that are run off their feet as it stands and cannot handle more animals coming through. The veterinarians cannot handle more animals coming through their doors as well. Greg adds that he can't see an end in sight either. Just imagine a year that we could say we worked collectively to actually reduce the roadkill number because I've never even seen that as a target. And that's really sad. Like, we know it's going up and we see it every day, yet we're not setting ourselves goals uh, in any shape, way or form. We're just going, nah, it's in the too hard basket. What's even worse is how some of Tasmania's wildlife is dying. Being hit by a car isn't always enough to kill an animal, as we saw with a paddy melon earlier. For some animals, it's a slow, painful and undignified death people sort of see an animal go oh oh, there's no way that's being saved so I'll just leave it there what they don't realize is how hardy our animals are so these animals can survive for weeks uh, in that condition and unfortunately through our rescue service we'll sometimes get called for those animals that are then found two or three weeks after they were injured and the situations they are in and the suffering they are going through cannot be put into words so never presume that an animal is just going to die. So if we hit an animal There are some things we should always try to do. Greg says if it's safe, we should pull over and check to see if the animal is dead. If it can be saved or if it needs to be euthanised. But we still have a responsibility, even if the animal is dead. 
A really basic run through is to turn the animal on its back, look for the pouch, which will essentially be almost where our belly button is on some species and almost where our sternum is on others. So have a little uh, look around there for a pouch. If it's a male, it's obvious. Most of the time you should see some pretty clear signs that it's a male. And then you just pull the pouch open and have a look. But if you still don't feel comfortable with that, again, call your local rescue network. Tell them at the time you've never checked a pouch before and I guarantee you they will talk you through it. So if there is a baby in that pouch, it, it might be able to be saved. Even if it's a really, really small baby, it shouldn't be left there just to suffer and, and die. It's uh, just inhumane to do that, of course. The last vital step is to remove the carcass from the road. Littered with dead bodies... The road is somewhat of a smorgasbord for animals hunting for an easy dinner. The worst I have seen was a wallaby at a beautiful spot called Cradle Mountain that had been hit by a car. And look, we, we figure it was a female in breeding season because there were three dead males all around it as well that she'd obviously attracted in. And then it's, alongside that were two dead devils and a quoll. So it was just this pile of carnage from one animal that was left in the middle of the road. And look, that's an extreme situation. Okay, but if we look at things like in Tassie, Tassie Devils now, they've now learned to run on the roads to find food because it's the easiest place to travel and easiest place to go. And of course, you'll find food every single time. So, you know, removing carcasses at least 20 metres from the road will provide them a food source and mean that they're not going to get hit while they're eating. In the two-hour drive back to Launceston, I count the roadkill. I get to 74 and it's only on one side of the highway. Some bodies are maimed beyond recognition. A violent mess of fur and organs smeared across the road. Dried blood staining the bitumen. Ravens pecking at the remains. Other animals, limp and lifeless, but still whole, have been carefully pulled to the side of the road. All I can do is wonder whether their deaths were instant, or if they lay there for hours, days, or weeks in unimaginable pain. Two years ago, a petition calling for greater wildlife safety measures on Tasmanian roads was put before the state parliament. It received over 1,500 signatures. The petition wanted to see more infrastructure-based solutions that are used interstate and overseas taken on, including rope bridges, underpass crossings and more virtual fences. At the time, the Department of Natural Resources and Environment said the fencing had variable results, with roadkill reduction success ranging from 50% to having no change. Greg wants to see more research into roadkill prevention. When it comes to preventing roadkill, it needs to be a combination of everyone working together. I mean, we know there are some really major things that can be done that are probably out of the everyday person's hands. So research, you know, we need to do some research on Tasmanian animals and what actually will work to either prevent them coming onto the road in the first place or something to scare them off the road as cars approach, uh, whether it's rumble strips on the road or whether it's uh, virtual fencing that's specific to Tassie wildlife. Uh, is it tunnels under the the road or overpasses over the road, you know, all of this requires research first and foremost, and that needs to be a collaborative effort between probably community, charity, government and council. We need to do research on what's worked in other places and, you know, sometimes you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And look, we believe that while it'll be a huge job to fix up all the existing roads in Tassie, every new road that's built, we're falling further behind. So at least let's start implementing things on the newer roads that are built so we're not falling further behind the eight ball. 
The Tasmanian government has made efforts to reduce the state's roadkill toll. It's invested in public education and road signs. It's also trialled virtual fencing and tunnels under the road. In 2018, as part of the Save the Tasmanian Devil program, the state government launched the Roadkill Taz app. It's a citizen science project which, during its three-year trial period, encouraged people from all over the state to report roadkill. The primary focus was on the Tassie Devil, but the app allowed for all species, including wombats, quolls and little penguins. It helped identify roadkill hotspots and where mitigation efforts could be applied. But despite moves to reduce roadkill, decisions elsewhere in the state could counteract efforts. In Tasmania's northwest is Takaina, Tarkheim, the world's second largest temperate rainforest. The rugged wilderness, spanning nearly 500,000 hectares, is home to life found nowhere else in the world. The Tarkheim is a serene place, lush with countless shades of green, the air cool and crisp. There's life everywhere. Towering trees are hugged by mosses, ferns protrude from the ground in every direction, and underfoot, the forest floor is soft with fallen leaves, slowly decomposing to nurture new life. The Tarkine is a sanctuary for native animals, including the endangered Tasmanian devil, whose numbers have plummeted since the 90s. It is also home to quolls, wombats, platypuses, giant wedge-tailed eagles, white goshawks and masked owls. But the decision made by Tasmania's Environment Protection Authority, or EPA, could threaten animals even within this refuge. Uh, little paddy melon heading off into the bush there. Venture Minerals is an Australian mining company, and in 2013, the EPA approved a proposal by the company to mine for iron ore in the Tarkine. But there were conditions on the approval of the Riley Creek mine. Quite a few years ago, they approved Venture Minerals' proposal for a strip mine for iron ore in, in the Tarkine, in an area that has recognised, verified world heritage values and national heritage values. And the EPA approved their mine. And the, I guess the conditions that were placed on it mitigated some of that damage. Uh, and one of those conditions was that they couldn't move their trucks or their staff transport between dusk and dawn. And so that was put there because one of the biggest risks to the Tasmanian devil and the spotted tail quoll along that section of area to be impacted by this mine was the movement of vehicles at night. Those additional vehicle movements on that road would have meant an increase in roadkill, not just Tasmanian devil and spotted tail quoll, but possums and wallabies and, and bandicoots and all of those things. That's Scott Jordan. He's on the board of the environmental group, Tarkine National Coalition. While conservationists weren't necessarily on board with the mine at all, they were somewhat reassured by this nighttime transport ban. But last year, the EPA removed it. In light of that, while we don't think they should have approved the mine at all, they did put that condition in that they couldn't move the vehicles at night to, to minimise that impact. Yet, before the company had even started mining, they applied for an exemption from that condition. And for some reason that we can't explain, the EPA decided to, to grant them approval to run their trucks right through the night. And so it's, it's this bizarre situation where the, the very mechanism you use to justify why it was OK to approve that project gets thrown out before the project even starts rolling. Scott says roads running through the Tarkine are not heavily used, particularly at night. 
providing some protection to local wildlife. When we start opening up mines and allowing them to run their, their vehicles all night, that changes that dynamic and it puts them at the risks that we're seeing in other parts of the state. And, and it stands to reason that if we expose them to the same risks, we can expect to see the same result. It's not a very active mine. The Ryla Creek mine has only operated three times since 2013 and once since the nighttime transport ban was lifted. Since September, apart from one worker who shows up once a week, the site is essentially deserted. But Scott remains concerned that operations could start up again at any time, bringing in the trucks. And so what we're seeing here is huge risks taken to our wildlife and to our wild places for a project that can't even survive the economic risks that are associated with its project. And so for our mind, the risk was too great to the wildlife to be approving this project, but economically it's compromised as well. And so in some ways the animals have got a reprieve because the, the company fell over after just a few months of operation. But we know they're, they're sitting there with those now amended permits ready to roll the next time the iron ore price spikes again. I put this to Venture Minerals Chief Executive, Andrew Radonjic. The judgment by the conservationists is, is very much, it's not thinking of the broader picture. And, uh, you know, with all these mitigation programs that uh, we've been putting in and, you know, we've been supporting the Save the Devils program, you know, since 2009 through programs that they've been running and funding. And we've been out there removing waste and roadkill. So we're minimising that impact, but to compare the value of, of the Riley Iron Ore Mine to you know the local community creating jobs, uh, that's their opinion, but uh, what we get the support of very high percentage, maybe 99% of the population, the government support to build this, you know, to create jobs and, and add to the uh, add economic prosperity to the, uh, to the northwest of Tasmania. Venture Mineral says it's too restrictive to mine only during the day, particularly in winter when there's only eight hours of daylight. The need for nighttime trucking is is very much around efficiencies. We use small trucks. This is not like in the Pilbara. Small ships, because the Port of Burnie can't take larger ships. So because it's a bulk commodity, you, you need to be able to uh, you know reduce your costs at every every possibility. So there's simply not enough trucks to put on the road in the daytime. And then once you put too many trucks on the road just during daylight hours, then you start having that other situation where you're driving the trucks through the town of Ridley, for example, and uh, we'd only add to the density of those trucks. Part of going nighttime truck is also to, to spread that out. The EPA did impose some restrictions on the new permit. There's a speed limit of 60 kilometres per hour on the road through the heart of the Tarkine, and drivers also have to do an education program. In roadkill hotspots, there has to be virtual fencing in place. Devices spread out on both sides of the roads at 25 metre intervals that are activated by headlights, alerting animals with sound and flashing lights. The Tarkine Road is windy, undulating and travelling through dense forest, so Scott doesn't reckon virtual fences are effective. But Andrew says that the fencing has worked well on the roads they use. It looks to be quite effective and, and it provides this virtual fencing by emitting uh, a signal not only when the light hits it the first time, but it actually triggers the next one around. So it's designed to work around corners on very sharp bends. It could be an issue, but uh, then I suppose the logic thing would be to put them in every 12 and a half metres maybe just to make sure it does work and trial that accordingly. But you know, um, our sort of bends are uh, a 25 metre spacing is adequate. 
The PERMA also says Venture Minerals has to notify the EPA within 24 hours of killing a koala devil and to provide monthly roadkill reports. But Scott says he doesn't trust the self-reporting. They also had a permit condition that said they had to clean up any roadkill of a morning and so by the time any tourists or passing traffic were going through that road, then any evidence of the last night's carnage is gone. And so we don't know. We don't know whether the company kept adequate records or not. Logic tells us that if you're, if you're on the road when the wildlife's there, that, that's the highest risk. I ask Andrew how many animals have been killed by Venture Minerals' trucks since the permit was revised. Three. None of them were endangered species. Andrew says most of the roadkill being cleaned up by their truck drivers were hit by other road users. Cleaning the road is part of their permit requirement. But he says Venture Minerals is taking the roadkill issue very seriously. We've been with the Tasmanian Devil Parade back in 2009. We funded some research. You know, we're well aware of the situation and the importance. And, you know, we, you know, we volunteered to, to collect data and remove waste from the road, side of the road. And the road's not owned by us. We don't own the road. We've got an agreement with Hydro Tasmania. We're doing, if you like, above and beyond what we need to do because we want to embed ourselves with the society, the local people down there. Scott says Tasmanian wildlife deserves better. It's why the Tarkine National Coalition has taken on the EPA. We are seeing an increase in the, the number of species added to the threatened species list. We're seeing declines in the numbers of species that are on that list. And we're seeing far more species moving into those categories that indicate their risk of extinction. So the, the regulatory system we've got in place doesn't work. It isn't doing the job. It isn't protecting those threatened species. And just applying those cookie-cutter conditions to every project that comes along and pretending that it'll work differently than it has before is just, it's the definition of madness. And, and we need real reform and we need regulators who are actually prepared to say no when, when the project runs risks that are unacceptable. If you were driving along in a private vehicle at night and you happened to hit a threatened species, that's not an offence under the various laws because you didn't mean to do so. But where you're operating a, a mine or a, um, you know, a larger operation and you're potentially going to kill numerous of those threatened species, then that's when the different requirements kick in and the need for different approvals and permits kicks in. That's Claire Bookless. She's a lawyer working for the Environmental Defender's Office, the firm representing Tarkine National Coalition in the Tasmanian Supreme Court. We are arguing that the EPA doesn't have the power, the legal authority, to make the decision that it has made. So we'll be asking the court to decide whether the EPA was operating within the, the scope of the powers under the Environmental Management and Pollution Control Act. And we will be um, asking the court to decide whether or not the EPA took account of things like the objects of its legislation, including the need to maintain genetic diversity and the need to take a precautionary approach when making decisions under that Act. We'll also be asking the court to decide whether or not the mining question commenced uh, within the timeframe allowed for under the permit. Claire says the case is important because it'll take a hard look at the powers and limitations of the EPA. It's also important to establish the limitations on the EPA's powers to vary permit conditions after the permit has been granted and without the opportunity for public comment. 
So that's a really important, I suppose, principle that where there are um, permit conditions, especially where they've been imposed following a planning appeal, whether or not the EPA can just um, vary those conditions without having to go back through a, a public process is a really important question that we hope this case will cast some light about. The EPA says the changes to the permit, allowing nighttime transport, were made in accordance with the objectives of the Environmental Management and Pollution Control Act which includes economic development. The Act covers maintenance of genetic diversity, but generally biodiversity is covered by the Federal Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. So there are different levels of protections for um, threatened species. So we've got the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act at that federal level, and we've also got the Threatened Species Protection Act, um, which is a piece of Tasmanian legislation that protects threatened species in Tasmania. So there are um, two levels potentially of protection for threatened species in Australia in most states and territories, but there isn't any law that protects native wildlife from becoming roadkill. But Claire, who's also practised environmental law in Queensland and Victoria, says Tasmania's threatened species protections are pretty lax in comparison. Unfortunately, you know, despite the fact that Tasmania has such an abundance of really important and endemic species like the Tasmanian devil found nowhere else on earth. Our threatened species protection laws in Tasmania really leave a lot to be desired. Um, There are certainly things about our laws. They operate in a way and have been implemented in a way that means that they're not offering the level of protection that you would hope and expect for such important biodiversity and creatures. Scott is also concerned by gaps in the laws. Um, Unless you're a threatened species, there are no protections for you. And so we have a system where we just allow wildlife to be pushed and pushed and pushed until they do get to that threatened species list. And then we start to consider whether we need conditions. And, And those conditions haven't proven to be effective anyway. And so we really need a holistic view of how we protect our wildlife. And that needs to start with every animal being valued. If Scott and Claire win the case... It may provide some protections for nocturnal animals in the Tarkine and perhaps set a precedent for other commercial routes. But it won't end the statewide massacre on our roads. Greg from Bonnarong says there are some simple things that we as individuals can do to help decrease roadkill. So the first bit of advice we always give to people is try to plan your drive to not be in the dark when the animals are awake. So if I've got to drive up to the north of the state or the northwest, I'll always plan my drive to be during the daytime. You know, and look, even if that means I have to get some cheap accommodation somewhere, I would far prefer that than being on edge the entire way, knowing that there's uh, every chance multiple animals will run out in front of me on the journey. So look, that's the first thing is planning our drive times. And the second thing is, and it's not rocket science, we've all heard it, is just driving slower at night time. And, you know, we're not talking crawling along at 30 k's an hour in a 100 zone. It can be a very small sacrifice of time. So, for example, driving at 80 in a 100 zone, if you actually do the maths for, say, a half-hour drive, it only adds a couple of minutes literally to your drive to just drive a little bit slower. And the reaction times we then have for wildlife jumping in front of us and uh, the time to actually slow down is just increased so, so much to give them every chance. More than anything, Greg says the solution lies in changing attitudes, in Tasmanians aiming higher and not accepting less. 
But when I look to the case in the Tarkine, it seems the government is failing to lead this shift. I think what we tend to do when we analyse damage to wildlife, uh, we look at it as a whole and say, oh, well, look, it's just a few being killed on the road. So, you know, it's not going to impact the entire species. And I'm calling bollocks to that. I really am. I I just think it is really important that we recognise at this point every single life does count. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. To hear more stories, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Find us on Instagram at Voice of Real Australia for photos and more from the show. Voice of Real Australia comes from Launceston this week on the lands of the Palawa people. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville, reporting for this story by Beck Pridham, who writes for The Examiner. Special thanks this week go to Clancy Barlin, Marie Wynan, Corey Martin and Saffron Howden. Our editor is Emily Sweet. This is an ACM podcast. <laughs>